Welcome to the Tiger Cafe podcast, a show that provides unique and interesting conversations from members of the Princeton community. We are your hosts, Jen from Washington, Antic from Poland, and Nastya from Illinois. Every week, we will be talking with Princeton faculty to replicate authentic conversations that normally occur on campus in a cafe setting. Now, grab your favorite cafe beverage and join us for a fascinating conversation on this week's show. We are so excited to welcome Nick Vogue to the Tiger Cafe podcast today. Nick directs the McGraw Center's learning programs, including both the undergrad learning program and the graduate learning program. Adopting a sociocognitive approach informed by self-worth theory and positive psychology, Nick explores the unique educational expectations of elite research universities and the ways students engage with and meet them. Nick is also a founding member of the Princeton Perspective Project, Principedia, and the Academic Resilience Consortium. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, we would like to begin with a cheers to try and sadly only imagine the fact that we are in a cafe. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited. I'm quite curious to see where this conversation takes us. All too familiar for all of us, especially for myself. Uh, we all have heard the phrase that you can't spell procrastination without Princeton. <laughs> and Nick, I know that a lot of your work is involved uh, with how to overcome procrastination, which I know is a challenge to so many people, especially mm-hmm. at Princeton. And we were wondering what inspired you to really dive deep into learning about procrastination and then going on to teach it to other uh, people and other students, uh, especially the fact uh, we, wa- we wanted to know if you were once yourself a big procrastinator and then maybe one morning you woke up and you were like, no more. I got to make some changes. Um, what do I do about this? Um, so with respect, so yes, this is the first part of that question. It wasn't, but it wasn't as cinematic as you described that one day I woke up and said, okay, I'm going to, uh, but there was some, a lot of serendipity involved. So, um, I think, so when I was an undergrad, I was a big procrastinator and I procrastinated a lot. Um, and part of me said, that's fine. I'm good at it. What's the deal? What's the big deal? You know, procrastination is a skill. I, I'm, I've mastered it. Uh, I know how to do as little as possible. And, and I kind of ignored some of the other, just looking back, you know, like I'd be stressed out or exhausted. And I just didn't consider those as consequences. I was getting good grades and said, hey, it's working. I didn't really think holistically, is it working? Uh, nor did I think too much about why I was doing that other than I didn't want to. But of course, I was actually studying things that I really wanted to study. And so if I would paused, I would have said, this doesn't make sense, actually. But in terms of how I got it, so we'll come back to that. So that was my, my history. And absolutely, that informs what I was doing. But it wasn't so linear as that. So when I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley, I was in the School of Education. I studied literacy. I, so actually, my area of expertise is how people read and learn uh, at an advanced level. But I'd heard about this professor over in the psychology department named Marty Covington, and he, have, he offered a cool graduate seminar, and a friend who took it, and I just kind of wandered over there, so to speak, and um, ended up in his class. And then I didn't really know what he researched. I didn't at that point. And then I read about it, and he's one of the founders or progenitors of self-worth theory, which is a broad set of theories in psychology and motivation that's applied specifically to achievement motivation. And we, when I started to read about this, I was like, Wow. Um, this person is describing these dynamics in me that I'd never really understood. I wasn't even fully aware of and no one had ever named. And on the one hand, 
uh, that was kind of exhilarating and a little frightening. And then I, you know, another thought of that is how can someone who doesn't even know me know so much about me? How is that even possible? You know, how can someone who's writing theories? Um, and so that was really fascinating. And then Marty was just a really wonderful, wonderful person. And I think that was a big part of it that his, he was very kind and generous. I don't think he was a procrastinator actually. I've never heard him say that he was, but, um, and it's not software theory doesn't only look at procrastination, but uh, so I ended up in that in that graduate seminar and read the material the materials he had assigned, and it really spoke to me. And and I think a lot of people in academia are studying something that has very deep resonating issues with them in some way or another. Uh, and so that's that's one kind of answer. Um, why did I pursue that? I think that the fundamental dynamic. There's a few reasons why procrastination draws my attention in particular. It's a real uh, motivational puzzle. It's really interesting, you know, if we take it very basically, it's a, the kind of procrastinate I'm talking about and when I, I, part of me really wants to do something. I want to do something, and but I can't do it. I can't get myself to do it. Now, this is a real puzzle. If I say, I want to have a drink of my coffee, I do it. Hmm. Most things, I, if I say I want to do them, I just do them. Why is it that I can't do this thing that I really want to do? And some people say, well, I guess you don't really want to do it. I don't think that's the explanation. We really do want to do it. So what's going on there? And so I think procrastination as a portal into the complexity of human motivation is really fascinating. Number two, procrastination is rife at Princeton. It's in this community. And my mission, my, my goal is to serve my community. And I think procrastination or more broadly avoidance and mixed motivations causes a lot of anguish and suffering among students. And I wanna do something about that. Um, and I can, because I have this very, I'm a very fortunate that I had my own challenges, but I also met Marty Covington and learned the stuff. How lucky can you be that I'm in that position? I'm in a place that I happen to learn this stuff and it's pretty applicable. So I wanna to try to share it. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I actually, I love this story and I love that you mentioned this feeling of procrastination as in how can someone know so much about me without knowing me? And I remember when I went to one of the first McGraw meetings, you saw, you showed us this like all too familiar scenario. And that was exactly the same thing I thought when you were saying that. And I want to extend my personal thanks, Nick, because all these workshops were actually one of the reasons why I'm still, you know, very happy and uh, gladly alive here, even though we're approaching midterms week. So uh, <laughs> I have to say that uh, all of your strategies were extremely, uh, extremely useful. Uh, but I want to ask you uh, a bit more about this procrastination issue. What do you think is the mistake that people make most often when it comes to procrastination? And uh, if so, also, uh, what are some of the best ways in which we can overcome these errors that we make in this field? Well, I think there's, so if there's a couple of ways to think about that. One is, well, let me, let me say that. I think one big idea is that the way we think about procrastination is flawed. It's mistaken. And then that's why we're not able to resolve it. So a lot of people think, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm procrastinating because I'm not motivated. So I need to motivate myself more. And so I'm going to scare myself into motivation. If I don't study for this test, I'm not going to get an A and I'm not going to go to med school or, um, and so I, so the, the assumption is that motivation means a lack, excuse me, that procrastination means a lack of motivation. And I think this is, this is actually mistaken. In fact, the research from self-worth theory shows that people who procrastinate are actually more motivated and that procrastination is a state of motivated inaction, motivated stasis or stuckness. Uh, and so that, but once we have, if we have that starting point, then all of our attempts to resolve the matter are flawed because they don't, they follow from the incorrect premise. 
Um, I think another issue with procrastination is it's much more complicated than, than uh, many of the treatments or approaches out there. So I know there's a really fantastic and famous and quite entertaining uh, TED talk, I believe, on overcoming procrastination. Talk about monkey mind. Have you heard of monkey mind? This idea that our mind flits from one thing to another. And that is true. That is a part of motive, uh, procrastination. Unfortunately, it's only one small part of procrastination. So you can resolve that part and still have all kinds of other uh, behaviors, actions, environmental situations, motivations, feelings, self-talk, thoughts that are not then resolved. And so you'll continue to repeat the pattern. And so I think procrastination is not simple. It's not as I'm not motivated or I'm not, I don't have time management or I have monkey mind. Um, it's actually all of those things and more. And um, so I'm, I'm, I hate to say it, but I think that number one, people have a, often a misconception and two, that it's actually more complicated than people uh, imagine. And I think that's why, going back to the first point, that's why it's such a fascinating portal into human motivation because it's so complicated, it's complex. And so it reveals the full, or can reveal the full complexity of, of the human, human condition and being a human being. That's very interesting. It sounds uh, similar. The three of us are in a freshman seminar about failure and we're starting mm. to learn more kind of about how our mind works with failure and a lot of sort of the cognitive uh, issues that go on and we don't even have mm -hmm. any idea. So that's interesting. It kind of relates to the topic of procrastination as well. But um, switching, switching gears a little bit, I'd love to talk just a little bit about the McGraw Center. Obviously, it's a mm -hmm. great resource for um, people in Princeton and you've kind of switched to everything virtual. How has that uh, transition been for you guys? Well, for, uh, for me personally, I mean, it's hard. I, I'm not in this business. I'm not in this work to... Uh, look at a screen. Uh, I try to actually organize my life as much as possible that I'm not looking at spreadsheets, that I'm not doing that, that I'm actually connecting with students and people, uh, both for their benefit, but also for mine. Um, I, you know, it nourishes me. It's why I'm in the field. So that's, that frankly is hard. Um, on the other hand, I think we really tried as a center to try to understand that we have a, perhaps a unique position or situation or possibility in this circumstance because one of the big organizing principles in McGraw is we think we are here to help, we believe that one way to think about our work is we help people transition to adapt and adjust and that Princeton is really different than what most students have experienced and, and encountered and the senior thesis will be different than your coursework. And so we think a lot about these transition points. And so for us, we thought, oh, well, actually this is a big transition for everybody. And from that vantage point, we have a unique, we, we already do this work. We already work with people on transitioning. So we examine what's new and what's different. Um, so to a certain extent, we've really tried to do that. You probably have seen that reflected in the workshops if you attended them. More concretely, you know, I think some of the programs translate pretty well to virtual. And in fact, maybe are enhanced or improved. So we have a learning consultations or one-to-one -one sessions. Um, I think they're, we've, they've been really powerful and effective. Um, probably the biggest obstacle for students is getting to them. And so actually virtually makes it some ways easier. And I don't think we lose a whole, we don't lose a lot in the one-to-one -one interaction through Zoom or through other modes. We lose something. We don't, we don't really have the human emotional uh, connection or communion, but much of that can be done. Tutoring, for instance, is another matter. I think particularly the group tutoring. So you, you're all freshmen, so you had never saw what we call study hall is group tutoring. And that, well, the aim of that is to create a sense of community among the students uh, facilitated by a tutor and that they 
learn from one another. And it's almost like what we're trying to do really is create a, a, the best study group ever that then the students would take with them outside of McGraw. That is not easy to replicate. Uh, another difficulty I think is just students getting comfortable with the idea of using academic support like McGraw. Um, I think we, get, we rely on a lot of word of mouth. Students said, I went to study hall. Wow, it was so helpful. Um, and I think there's just a lot fewer interactions where students are being able to share that over dinner. Hey, where are you going? I'm going to McGraw. What's McGraw? Tutoring. What, what's that like? Are you going to tutor? And you just be able to know. Or you can just walk by the room that we do tutoring, many rooms we do tutoring in and be able to see, hey, they're kind of having fun. Uh, that looks pretty good, or it's not what I thought it was going to be. There's none of those ways that students would sort of serendipitously uh, and in kind of environmentally be able to absorb what we do and what it's like. And so I think there, there's some bar I suspect there's some barriers virtually that would be lessened or reduced if we were in person. Um, in our previous episode with Dean Dolan, we discussed how every class kind of has a difference and there's generational differences. And you have been at Princeton for quite some time, a little over 10 years, if mm -hmm. I'm not wrong. And I was just wondering if McGraw or like you personally have seen um, like different grade levels or just different groups of students have different issues that you pay attention more to depending on like the year or mm -hmm. the circumstances and how um, McGraw addresses that? That's an interesting question. Um, I think there are two things going on. So just start just to frame my response. I think one is, of course, there are societal differences. And, uh, you know, 11 years ago, or it was, it'll be 11 years next month, like a month from today, I think, that I started at Princeton. Um, the ubiquity of technology, phones especially, affects our attention, our concentration, uh, the, the economic circumstances, Princeton's efforts in globalization, which I reflected in the group here. Um, those are all operating on students and it affects them. And, um, and that's absolutely true. At the same time, I'm always, and I, this is a message to you all, this is, I'm always growing and changing. What I'm interested in changes too uh and evolves and so on the one hand i when i knew, learned new things from colleagues from reading from my own uh study from learning from students then i my attention goes to uh, to new and different perspectives i adopt different perspectives i educate myself um and then i notice different things about the experience of students and so they're both these things are going on so it's not always clear how much of it's me changing <laughs> and how much is the students are changing. Um, and those are not, you know, I think the students tend to are affecting me more than I am them, but um, sometimes, so I think that absolutely, I mostly think of it in terms, not so much that the students as individuals are changing so much as the circumstances in which you're developing and growing and you're responding to are changing. Um, I don't like to essentialize or students or groups. That's, I think that's kind of a little too easy sometimes. And it tends to lead to blaming students, which I really, really actively resist and oppose. Um, so, but I do, f it seems to me from listening to students, what they tell me rather than what I experience is attention and concentration are much bigger issues. Just being able to immerse themselves in one thing for an enduring a chunk of time. And that is something actually that's quite distinct about the university historically. It's a place for contemplation, for deep engagement, uh, that things take a long time 
that's why historically universities were set off. You know, when Princeton was started, there was nothing here. There were these little fields around and Dartmouth's way up in there. And that they would actually place universities in these quite isolated places. So you would turn inward, that you would have time, you'd contemplate. That's, that's one of the distinctions of a university is the depth and that that's about concentration, immersion, um, and, and focus. And uh, so that's, I think that's harder in the society we live in. And not surprisingly, it's harder for the current group of students. Um, I feel it too. So that's one, I think the economic demands make education feel a little bit different. The, the need, the desire to explore remains there. I think Princeton students remain idealistic, but I feel that I think the pressures of economy, the world we live in makes it harder for them to, to uh, pursue that. And if it can feel more and more, and I'll just stop here, feel more and more, I think that exploration and intellectual passion is a luxury and that the necessity of grades and practical studies and careers is it is a, um, excuse me that the former is a, a luxury and then this is it becomes a necessity i have to do this i would love to explore the readings and spend some time talking about it but i gotta write this internship uh application and not one of them is a necessity feels like necessity one feels like a luxury and so this this pressure is constantly there um and actually, I think that's reflective of a larger thing is that Princeton students are busier than ever, it seems to me. You have more and more things on your plate. Uh, that, that seems to have increased too. Yeah, that's, I can personally relate to that. I never thought it would be this much work. You know, like if you think of an online school, you're like, you know, like I will just, you know, get this done and I'll have the rest of the day for myself. Well, I was quite mistaken. <laughs> uh, so I absolutely feel uh, all the things that, that you were you were just talking about. Um, but uh, so I'm actually relating onto that uh, and onto the virtual environment. Uh, since we're by ourselves, it's a bit harder because you cannot see what other people are doing. So I think... What, what often worked for me when I was in school was that I get motivated by the fact that other people around me are working. So, you know, you collaborate. Uh, and I'm just curious because um, I want to know a bit more about your approach to motivation and how do you think uh, that should be approached, particularly in this time where we are often just working by ourselves or the only way in which, in which we communicate is through some virtual means. Well, I think mean, another great observation um... So let me take a slight detour first, and then I'll respond to your question about working alone and also how that fits into a framework of motivation. Um, the first, the point I want to make is actually about more broadly about McGraw. Um, and one of the th one of the things that we really organizes our approach is we think about the invisible expectations, the invisible curriculum. And one of the things you just said is I don't see what other people are doing, and so that affects me. Uh, and that lack of knowing, that uncertainty, that invisibleness, the inaccessibility, well, am I doing it right? Are they doing more? Uh, should I be doing more? This creates a lot of doubt and uncertainty because it's invisible. There's other ways that, and so that's important. One of the things we want to do at McGraw is unpack the culture and say, hey, let's examine this. Because if we don't examine that, uh, oftentimes what students do is they attribute any sort of uncertainty or lack or inadequacy or to them as individuals. Oh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not able rather than say, Oh, well, the other students are actually doing different things. They're working collaboratively or they're going to office hours or uh, another kind of invisibility is what's actually going on in their mind. What are the mental processes? I'm going through my homework with my intention is to get it done. But the other person is going through the homework with the intention of mastering the concept and technique to be able to apply it on an exam. And so they think very differently. Those are very, very different study processes, but they are invisible. 
So one of the things you're getting at here is this idea of this invisibility of crucial things to academics. One is when people study, they tend to be by themselves, we don't see them. In other words, when we learn how things are happening here, and now in this environment, we've added another kind of invisibility. We don't know what other people are doing nearly as much. And we learn a lot by emulation, by absorption. And so if we can't see it, it'd be hard to learn it. And those are, those are physical, social, mental cues and clues to us, the institution. You are not in a, in a space that's designed to promote learning. When you're on campus, everything, or most of those things, not everything, most of those things are designed to get you to think about, to learn and engage. You don't have all those social cues. That's real. I feel it too. That's really important. Um, particularly for young people, particularly people from coming from environments where historically you have been and you should have been influenced by your peers and by your teachers, all these external sources. That is what being a child or a young person is, is you defer to the authority and the influence of others. And part of becoming an adult is actually taking that back into yourself and the locus of control for motivation, for choice, decision. But that is not an easy process. It doesn't happen overnight just because now you're a college student, all of a sudden you're an adult. And, but that is part of what you're developing at this point. So that, that's a big theoretical uh, backdrop. But so I think it's a significant issue. And it makes sense that we'd have these social and physical and environmental clues are a big part of motivation. We create conditions, and there's a field called positive psychology that really emphasizes this and de-emphasizes things like willpower or discipline and says, what we want to do is use our creativity to make decisions to create environments that are on the one hand conducive to our deep attention and attraction and engagement, and then to reduce things that would get in the way of that, obstacles, distractions. Um, and so uh, that's a recognition in a whole field of psychology of your point, right? Uh, so that... And I think that's not how most people go around thinking about, say, engagement or motivation. They think of it as something that's inside of them rather than interaction between them and other people, between themselves and their environment. And I'm going to add from self-worth theory that motivation is also an interaction between yourself and yourself, actually. It's about our perceptions of ourself, our self-relationality. How do I, so a self-worth is a judgment. It's an assessment of my something about me. So that's me kind of judging me. That means there's sort of two me's in this, right? My, my relation to myself. Any case, so, um, but so the question was sort of how about motivating oneself and the challenges of that. I think, so again, I, I would say that I want to, if we're going to understand motivation, we need to go to that depth. Like what is our relation to ourselves? Whoa, that seems really heady and out there. But also we need to look at, okay, how's my room set up? Is my bed right there? Am I looking at it all the time? Like that matters too. Um, and everything in between, like, so for instance, how do I think about myself, about my work? Um, do, on a daily basis, am I thinking, oh, I got to do my piece out. I have to get this done. and I'm behind in this. Or am I thinking, I love physics. How can these materials help me pursue something I love? And I, I'm not saying some ideal, I'm not saying the latter is better, like more idealistic. It's better to be motivated by love. That's, it's not a more ethical judgment. It's a motivational one. Which idea, I got to get it done versus I love what I'm doing, gets you to do, to do the thing that you truly want to do. So it's not a moral thing, an ethical judgment. It's better to be motivated by this. It's just a practical point. Um, 
So I'm not sure I answered your question. I went off on a tangent there. Sorry about that. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. No, I, I was just, uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things I guess you, you could talk about here, but uh, for sure, uh, you know, ar arranging your workspace is one of the key things, uh, I guess, these days. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, you know, motivation has been uh, important for each of us. You know, it al it's always been, but I feel like, you know, uh, now more important than ever, right? Maybe I could say one thing that I think that, Motivation isn't something that just is. We have it or we don't. We have a lot or a little. It's actually something we create, something we do. Um, and so we can use lots of tools from your favorite playlist to getting on a Zoom call with somebody and studying in parallel, not even hardly talking. Um, we can be conscious about our self-talk. We want to gain awareness about our emotions and what we feel. Uh, I think the main principle of, that I would say is, is to be realistic. Wow, it's hard. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And here's what's hard about it and let's see how I can do it. But that ultimately motivation and uh, we might call discipline. And I think there is more demand on students in this environment to be self-disciplined. That discipline is an, as a creative act. It's not of making yourself do something you don't want to do. It's actually being creative and saying, what is it about this thing that I really want to do? And there's an optical there, but I really want that. And that is actually the root of discipline, which is disciple. Someone who's powerfully motivated by a deep passion for something who overcomes obstacles. So can we reconceptualize these, these real legitimate challenges, difficulties, and obstacles in turn and say, this is the short run, but the long run is this passion, this enduring interest for me, this value or a significance or impact I want to have on the world or meaning I want to find. And the more we can bring that understanding of the situation to the fore, these will diminish and I'll be more motivated to, to pursue, pursue, to strive for. So shifting a little bit away from McGraw, because we know, Nick, you are like the face of McGraw. That's what we all know you for. But um, you also helped establish something called the Princeton Perspectives Project. Yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us more about it, because I feel like a lot of students don't know that it exists in the first place. And so it's kind of what was your mission with it and what was the purpose of establishing this project? Well, first of all, it was a really group effort. So there are three equal partners. Um, including students. Uh, the USG ha ha continues to have a vital role. Uh, I was coming at it from the office of the Dean of College, you met with Dean Dolan, and then uh, my colleague Alexis Andrus, who's now a Dean of Whitmiss College, she was at that time working in Otis, the office of the Dean of Undergraduate Students so around student life. The idea was really based on, an, and some other folks too, an observation um, we're trying to, you know, really based on understanding what is the internal dynamic of a lot of students on campus, um, what does it feel like to be at Princeton? What, um, what does Princeton do to students emotionally and affectively? And we zeroed in on a particular idea or kind of belief, uh, uh, which is phrased quite succinctly as effortless perfection, that this was an expectation. That there, people have seen, alumni said the same thing, people felt that they were supposed to be perfect and it was supposed to be effortless and it shouldn't look like I'm trying. And we felt that this, and this resonated with a lot of people, that they, they had kind of internalized this message from the Princeton community in context, that this is something that was idealized and something they were supposed to do, but also unattainable. And that it was this, and that unattainability, that distinction between this unrealistic expectation and the reality on the ground caused a lot of uh, anguish and suffering and difficulty and feelings of sense of inadequacy and things like that, that became then obstacles 
to engaging with one another, to, to appreciating the things that they were experiencing, and just uh, maybe avoiding challenges, all kinds of things. And so really a lot of it centers around that. Um, and at the time there was some work, my colleagues at Harvard and Stanford were doing things and had some similar aims, but it was most of it was really coming more from the administration. And we wanted something that was, that was reflective of the Princeton community of Princeton students speaking to one another. And so a key element of Princeton Perspective Project is Princeton students telling their stories um, about, in some cases, resilience, but, but really trying to be as real as possible. I had this difficulty, I had this challenge. Uh, we often don't talk about that at Princeton, especially in the first couple of years. You don't hear, everybody's doing great. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, we don't hear about that. And so it's really meant to puncture that, to open it up uh, and then share both the difficulties, but also ways people move forward uh, without it coming across as a humble brag or something like that. Um, and so that was the idea. So we collaborated with students, we solicited and have continued to open, have open solicitations, although I'm no longer on the board, it's other people are. Um, people tell their stories. What does it feel like at Princeton? Um, and then how do you respond to that? And so I think it's what students should know is it's, these are not scripted. No one has ever been said, oh, you have a story, you should, you should do it on Princeton Perspective. Every student volunteers, they choose to make their statements. It, we never solicit them. Uh, and it's always, there's no editing, it's whatever they wanna say about that experience. And so it's very realistic. Um, and I think it's, what it's trying to do is, is interrupt this idea that you can somehow be perfect and that Princeton is easy or effortless. Just not, there's nothing to be further from the truth about that. Um, and that we, we often don't share, but are feeling internally some difficulties and challenges emotionally and otherwise. That's awesome. That sounds like a really interesting project. I'm excited to see more about it. Um, so I know we're running a little bit short on time, but one last thing that we did want to talk about is um, as everyone's kind of spread across the country or even the world, um, we're all thinking about the campus on Princeton and we are curious some of your favorite spots on campus besides the McGraw Center. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, one of the things that I did when I first got to Princeton is every, every not every day, but at least once a week, maybe a couple times a week, I would just make a point to go someplace I'd never been on campus. I eat my lunch and then I'd go and then look. Um, so there are a few places. So one of them is actually right around the corner from my office in McGraw Center, which is the East Asian Libraries. There's really beautiful artifacts in there, including um, a big Buddha statue and some other work. I, I lived in Japan. I really have a great appreciation. I love and traveled in Asia, uh, but it's just also a little bit different feel. It's a very small library. Um, and so it's, it feels a little sacred in there because of the artifacts and it's quiet and small. I like that uh, and also, and it ha but it also has the Princeton old wood and everything, it's cool. Um, a very different place, I like to walk down toward, uh, there's a stream, there's a couple streams on campus and there's one um, toward the lake near where the graduate housing is. There's a lovely little stream there. Uh, and so I like to walk there and I'll sometimes do walking meetings with students, we'll actually walk down there. Um, and I think I, there's still a thrill. I'm a fellow at Rocky, uh, and so Rockefeller College, if you haven't been there, it looks a lot like Hogwarts. So there still is a thrill walking into that space and the, uh, the kind of majesty of it and the, uh, the, you know, that Gothic cathedral and the big fireplace in the wood, you know, it's, it's like, wow, I'm at Princeton. It still kind of has that effect on me every single time. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, thank you so much, Nick. That was amazing. Uh, I just want to say to wrap up, if you're a uh, freshman listening to this, make sure to go to McGraw. Nick is amazing. His consultants are amazing. So uh, I highly recommend I can write down my name there to sign it. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us on Tiger Cafe. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really fun. I look forward to another conversation in a real cafe at some point, not too, not too distant future. For sure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you tune in every Sunday for a new episode with a Princeton-affiliated faculty member or alum. Stream Tiger Cafe on any platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and others, while enjoying your favorite cafe beverage as if you're comfortable sitting in a coffee shop. See you next week on Tiger Cafe.